Today's scripture reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity. We are in a series called Cry for Renewal, and we've been learning in a way how to pray, how to pray like a, a madman a little bit, a mad woman, uh, with the intensity that Habakkuk shows us in this book that we're looking at together. I have to say that sometimes um, I grow weary of the raging injustice of our city and I want to hide away somewhere. I get tired of reading, as you do, the newspaper accounts. There's a woman in our neighborhood whose name is Sunshine. And uh, the last few weeks, Sunshine has been sleeping on a mattress in our alley, and a couple times she asked me for $5. One time I was going for a run, and I said, sure, I'll give you $5 when I get back, and I don't have any money on me. And when I got back, Sunshine was gone. And then last night, uh, I saw her again, and she said, hey, did you forget to give me that $5 <laughs> you said you were going to give me? I said, yeah, I did, but I don't have any money on me right now. <laughs> but I can go get some. So, because I told her I'd give her $5 once and then twice, I decided to give her $10. And then this morning, a dog was barking loudly and I saw sunshine staggering across our sidewalk in a stupor, crying out aloud. And I wondered if that $10 that I gave her had contributed to the stupor that she was experiencing at that moment. I don't know her story. I'm not sure Sunshine is even her name, but sometimes I wanna run away and hide from the brokenness and the injustice of our city, as I'm sure you do. As we sang those words about our beautiful savior, about the woodlands and sunshine and twinkling stars, there's something nice and cathartic at times about being out in nature and letting the peace and the stillness of God wash over you outside of the intensity and the density and the challenges of our city. There are times to cry out to God because of the injustice of the world. 
And there are times also to sit quietly and listen to him for what he has to say. In tonight's, today's passage, this morning's passage, I don't know how I got to be tonight already, but this morning's passage is Habakkuk sitting quietly and listening <laughs> rather than unrelentingly raging against God. I want you to hear the quietness of the voice of God this morning as he speaks about his vision for the world, his vision for his people to persevere in the deep, dark trials of the world, but also to receive the freshness and newness of life from him as well. And we're going to look at one of the most, really most famous or important or influential verses in the whole Bible, which says the righteous shall live by faith. I'm just going to bring it to you under three headings today. There's, the, there's a vision that is spoken of here in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And the vision itself, you break it into three parts. The verse 2 speaks of the importance of the vision. Uh, why, why it's urgent, why it needs to be clear. The second part in verse 3 speaks of the nature of the vision. That is, it's going to take a while for it to come. It's going to delay. You're going to want to give up. And then the last part is the, the heart of the vision, which I'll unfold with you in verses 4 to 5, but will you pray with me at this time? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this turning point in this book. And there are times in our lives, Lord, where we need a turning point, where we need to move from uh, the focus upon the, the injustice of the world and the horrors of the world and begin to focus on your peace and your plans and your purposes. We recognize, O oh Lord, that oftentimes as we ponder your purposes, as we question them, as we probe them, Lord, that we sometimes feel that we can't get to the bottom of them. So this morning, we pray that you'd bring us into the meadows, into the woodlands, to see Jesus who is fairer, who makes the woeful, the woeful heart to sing. Help us to sing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the importance of this vision, its, its nature and, and its heart, in verse 2, you get the nature of the vision, which is uh, really twofold, that the vision is supposed to be clear and urgent. And you can see that in the text. I'll just read verse 2. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. What's happened to this point in the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk has been absolutely decimated by the wickedness that he sees all around him in Judah. He is crying out to God, saying, God, do you not see what's happening in our world? Do you not care about what's happening? Why do you sit by idly? Why don't you do anything? He says, the law is paralyzed, verse 4. Justice doesn't go forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth, perverted. He's saying that the world is hopelessly broken, that those who are in the places of governmental power put their hands in to that which is to be set aside for good, that those who have weapons take out those who 
are, are unarmed. And he complains to God in verses 2 through 4, and then God answers and says, I am doing something, and you would be absolutely amazed and astounded if you knew what it was that I'm doing in the world. And then he explains that the Chaldeans are coming, the Babylonians are coming, in order to destroy Jerusalem. And Habakkuk's second complaint is, God, if you're the eternal one, if you're the holy one, also if you're the rock, how could the rock of the people of God, the protector of the people of God, allow the people of God to be exposed to the wicked one who's coming in the world and he's absolutely beside himself with sadness? And some people think that Habakkuk is somehow sinning here because of the way that he speaks to God. But in reality, what Habakkuk is doing is pleading with God to be the God that he believes he should be. And he says, oh God, speak. And then he climbs up into his tower. It says, verse two, sorry, chapter two, verse one says, I will take my stand at my watchtower and station myself on the tower. I'll look and see what he will say to me and how he'll answer concerning my complaint. Some some texts translate complaint as reproof, as though Habakkuk is reproving God. He says, I will go away then. I will go sort of into nature and listen and wait for what you have to say. And what God says is, he says, this is the importance of the vision. He says, I'm going to give you a vision. I don't want, this vision is so important that I want it to be written very clearly and then I want it to be run to the nation, so to speak. Jeremiah was told to write his words, one of the prophets, to write his words down in a book. And Isaiah was told to write them on a scroll and write them on tablets. You remember when Moses went up upon the mountain, what happened with the words of God? They were inscribed into a tablet. Why? So that the word could be clear. But the point of the word being clear here is so that people could run with the word, could take the word and spread it to other people, that you see that at the end of verse 2, so that he may run who reads it. Some people think, some of the translators or some of the commenters think that what it means when it says so that he may run who reads it is that it's like a big billboard, (laughs) So that it's so, so clear that the one who's going to spread the message can see the message emblazoned, so to speak, on a billboard and would not miss it if he is running. I have to think that Brian Erlocker has to have lost his mind for some reason. I don't know if you have been to O'Hare recently, but every billboard is Brian Erlocker former unbelievable middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears, and now the guy has hair. So you can go to O'Hare. Anyway, I won't go into all of the puns. They're pretty bad. But um, I got to think that Brian Urlacher, if he were to look forward from when he was a young man and thought this is what the destiny of his life would be, that he would be a bit embarrassed. Right? What, the, what the Lord says is, emblazon it, so to speak, 
on a billboard so that all can see it. In fact, you could see it as if you're running. That's one way to interpret it. The other way to interpret it is inscribe it on a tablet so that someone could run with it. And this is the idea in the New Testament of proclaiming the good news, is to go to every village and make an announcement that some news has come. In other words, the word of God is how he rules the world. And if God rules the world with his word, then that word, once it is given, needs to be spread, needs to be taken, needs to move. You see, the issue here for Habakkuk is how are people going to survive this impending disaster? God has said that they're going to have a foreign nation invade Jerusalem and destroy it. They will take Zedekiah and stab out his eyes and kill his sons before him. They will burn the temple. They will loot the temple and take all the gold. They will take all the craftsmen and bind them and bring them into Babylon for 70 years is what's going to happen. How are the people to survive? There's two kinds of people in the world, those who read the directions when they assemble something new and those who don't. 98% of the people are the people who don't read them at all. What I'd like to do is I like to read them after I start. You know, I was putting together an Ikea chair last week, and of course I didn't want to... Actually, the dire, all the directions were like pictures, but I didn't want to look at them anyway. I can figure this out, so I put the two short legs that are supposed to go on the back, I put them on the front, and I put the two long legs that are supposed to go on the front on the back. And then I read the directions and I had to reverse them. Anybody who writes directions wants them to be clear. And what God is saying here is because this message that I'm about to give you is so important, it must be absolutely clear, clearly written, and then urgently proclaimed. Clear writing allows for clear communication. And clear communication is to come with great urgency. The importance of the message that God wants his vision to be heard, seen through its clarity and its urgency. The second part here is the timing or really the nature of the message. The message is going to seem delayed, but it's going to be accomplished in the end. That's what verse 3 basically says. The vision will seem delayed, but it will nevertheless be accomplished in the end. Listen to the language of delay. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There's something beautiful there. There's the lingering nature of the promises of God, which seem like they may never be fulfilled, and yet God is saying, no, they will certainly be fulfilled. But we have to wait. Last night, Eddie Rosario blasted a home run that lifted the Atlanta Braves to their first World Series appearance since 1999. That's 22 years. Of course, Chicago Cubs fans should not gloat since it took us 108 years between 1908 and 2016 to win the World Series. But here's the point. The vision that God is going to give to Habakkuk will seem to linger. He writes this in the 7th century B.C., that is between 609 and 605 B.C. And in part, it's a prediction of what will happen in 587 B.C. 
But it's also a vision of what will happen 600 years later when the person of Jesus Christ will come. God might take his time, but that doesn't mean he's not going to deliver. He had to wait 700 years. 600 years for the person of Christ to come. God might not give you everything that you want, but he will deliver on the promises that he has made, but he will do it in his time. The Italian meal can consist of between four and eight courses. Aperitivo, antepasto, primo, secundo, contorno, ensalada, formaggio e frutta, dolce, cafe, digestivo, that's like eight or nine or something, I don't know. I know you didn't understand any of those words, but an Italian meal can take up to two hours, where in America, we invented fast food, right, where we want it. Like, this is taking, he's been, this has been like three minutes, and my, my food is still not here. We are terrible at waiting. I ordered a book the other day at noon, and my wife told me, hey, your book's going to, she got a message. It said, your book will be here by 6 p.m. I got, I got the message at noon said it would come at 6 p.m. and it came at 4 p.m. How do they even do that? Like, are they just lurking around, driving around with books that we may want? I don't know if, we've, if Americans have de destroyed delayed gratification. Like, can we even wait anymore? So much of the scripture is about delayed gratification, waiting upon God, waiting for the word of God waiting for a relationship to be healed, waiting for an education to be complete, waiting for God to hear our prayers. God rules by his word, but his word requires waiting. A farmer has to suspend his desire while he works. A marathon runner must persevere to the end. A child has to wait until their parent comes home. And how are you, how are you in the waiting? They're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Some of them are like, we'll get out in two years, no problem. We're done. We're out. And God says, no, it's going to be 70 years for you. What happens in the waiting? When God first told Sarah that she would have a child, she laughed because she was an old woman. The delay of the vision doesn't mean doubting the vision. doesn't mean that the vision is doubtful. I remember when Amy and I first moved to Chicago 23 years ago. We're like, when will it seem like we've been here for a little while? And then 23 years goes by and you get old. And children go, grow up and bodies break down. So this is a vision that God is preparing Habakkuk to receive. He says, make it clear. Because of its importance, make it clear, it's urgent, and it's certain, but it's going to tarry. And then the last thing we see in the text is the heart of the vision, which is that the vision must be received by faith. That there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who, according to this text, who are puffed up and arrogant, and those who humbly wait upon God and receive. 
God rewards faith and delights in faith. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. I don't know if you've ever seen a rooster, the language of being puffed up, but a rooster can sort of inflate its chest and sort of uh, push, it push out his sense of strength. And the, the idea of the arrogant here is that arrogant, when we are arrogant, we puff ourselves up with our strength. We puff ourselves up with our own ability. We puff ourselves up with self-sufficiency. And he's saying the righteous are not like that. See, how do people respond to the vision of God? Part of the message of the scriptures goes all the way back to God taking Abraham in Genesis 15, taking him outside and saying, hey, Abraham, get outside for a moment. Look at the stars. He says to him, as many as those stars are, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, and Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's faith. Or you could call it steadfast trust in God. There's some truth to the idea that the vision itself is just verse 4 that the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. But actually, the fullness of the vision comes in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, it, set, it speaks, verse 3, of a splendor of God covering the heavens. It speaks, verse 4, of God with lightning flashes in his hand. It speaks of when God moves, that the mountains are scattered, that the rivers begin to roll and shake. It speaks in verse 16 of God taking arrows and killing the head of the wicked. When Habakkuk receives the whole vision in chapter 3, which is what you might call a theophany, listen to what it says about him in verse 16. It says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. And then listen to his resolution. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade it. You see, there are two responses to the vision that God has for the world. There's the kind of cocky strutting that laughs and says that God doesn't exist. And then there is the humble response of trust. Look at at his sense of trust the end of the chapter, he says, even if the fig tree doesn't blossom or the fruit be on the vines or the produce in the olive fail and the fields yield no food and the flock be cut off from the folds and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. For God, the Lord is my strength. He wants to trust God, that God will do what God says he will do. The heart of the vision is how one responds to God in faith. And uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, this is one of the most important verses in all of the scripture. In fact, that most complicated book, Romans, so dense in its theological exposition, is really a meditation completely on this verse here, that the righteous shall live by faith. In July 1505, there was a young lawyer who entered an Augustinian monastery. 
It was a place that was isolated from the world. It was away. It was in the woodlands. It was under the starry night. And the point of this monk getting away was for him to find God. But what he found, this young monk, as he entered the monastery, was that he was absolutely tormented. Despite the fact that he was dedicating, in his mind, every moment to God, he could not fight back his own lusts. He became anxious and desperate for an escape from his sin. He used to go to his confessor hour after hour and confess every single sin that he could remember that he had committed. But then he thought, what if I have forgotten a sin? And he used to hate the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 that quotes Habakkuk 2. He used to pound on this text And he hated the the view that he thought was a view of the righteous judgment of God. And he said, I cannot live with the righteousness that is required of me to live. And listen to his own words that he wrote, Martin Luther, that in a sense unlocked the Reformation. He said, at first I clearly saw that the free grace of God is absolutely necessary to, to obtain light and eternal life. And I anxiously and busily work to understand the word of God in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I questioned this passage for a long time and labored over it. For the expression, the righteousness of God barred me in two ways. He says that this phrase was customarily explained to mean that the righteousness of God is a virtue by which he himself is righteous and condemns sinners. He says that's how Augustine and almost all others, sorry, all others except for Augustine had interpreted this. That the righteousness of God, that is the wrath of God. But as I read this passage, I wish that God had never revealed the gospel for who could love a God who is angry, who judged and condemned people. And then he said, this misunderstanding continued until enlightened by the Holy Spirit, I finally examined more closely the words of Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by his faith. And from this passage I derived that life must be derived from faith. And the entire scriptures became clear to me, and heaven itself was opened to me. And now we see this brilliant light very clearly and are privileged to enjoy it abundantly. What he discovered on that day was that it was not merely the wrath of God that was going to come upon him as righteousness, but that he could have what's called gift righteousness. That God could give his gift righteousness to Martin Luther and to all of us in a way that we do not deserve it. What he was saying is, it is by faith that we receive life. In the midst of a world of death, life can be given that's the Romans 1.17 quotation of it. But the author of Hebrews also quotes this text in a slightly different way. Instead of saying that it's by faith that we receive righteousness, that it's by faith that we receive life from God, the author of Hebrews says that in the midst of trials, those who are righteous persevere by faith. 
One is the inception of our salvation, and the other is the persevering in our salvation. Here's what uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.38. He begins meditating in verse 32. He's saying that, that essentially what was happening in the book of Hebrews is that people were being taken away and put into prison, that their goods were being plundered, that they were being belittled by their culture. And he says this, he says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. And here's what he says, for my righteous one shall live by faith. And then if you know the book of Hebrews, this launches into this whole idea that it is the righteous by faith who persevere through trials. And he begins to mention Noah building the ark. How did Noah build the ark when the rain had not yet come? It was by faith. And he mentions Abraham. When God tells Abraham to go, God tells Abraham, he says, go. And Abraham is like, go where? To the place that I will show you, which requires faith. He mentions Sarah. And it says it's Sarah. Chapter 11 of Hebrews that she considered him faithful, he who had promised. Even though Abraham, the text says, was as good as dead, his people now number more than the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. You see, in Romans, we're told that we are made righteous by faith. And in Hebrews, we are told that we persevere by faith. Chapter 11 of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they were waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Habakkuk shakes his fist and laments at God. He laments the wickedness of the people. He laments the coming of the Babylonians. And God says, write the vision clear, proclaim it urgently. It might seem delayed, but it will come. And there's a city that is awaiting for you that is beyond this city. By faith, Abraham tested Isaac. By faith, Moses, here's what it says about Moses, that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's faith. That's how righteous people live, is by faith. You see, the arrogant says, I want the pleasures of this world. But Moses considered, here's what it says, the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt. When the people had to cross the Red Sea, they did it by faith, and those who came after the Egyptians were drowned. It's by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down. It's by faith that Rahab, a prostitute, did not perish with all who were disobedient. And then the author of Hebrews goes on and he says, I could tell you more about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the word of the sword, and were made strong. People, he says, of whom the world is not worthy. What he's saying is that our way through the trials of this world 
is not by focusing on ourselves, but by focusing on the greatness of the God who has called us to be his own. It's not even the greatness of our waiting that we should focus on. It's focusing on the one who breaks the power of sin and darkness. It's focusing on the one whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the king of glory. The king above all kings. In a sentence, faith is the link to life. The link to abundant life is steadfast trust in God. And as Habakkuk looked forward to the day of the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ was both clear and urgent. It was delayed but certain, and it requires faith but not pride. So Holy Trinity Church, may God give you faith for the trials that you have ahead. And Holy Trinity Church, may God give you faith to receive his righteousness, which is a gift which cannot be earned, which is given freely. And may God give you a faith that fulfills the law. There was a day when Abraham was old and his bones were creaky and his hair was gray and his, his wife was barren. And God said, I'm going to give you a promise that all people through the earth will be blessed through you. May you be the people of Abraham and the people of faith. And may you run with this message and run with urgency. And as you wait for the promises to be fulfilled, may you do so with steadfast trust. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we greet you. We thank you for Habakkuk and his candor and urgency, but we also thank you for his quietness, his willingness to come to a quiet place and say, God, you speak, I will listen. And Father, we pray for those who struggle today with faith, who are challenged in various ways and feel they cannot hold on any longer, and we pray that you, our fairest Lord, would hold on to them. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.